0: Hi, my name's Aaron, and I'm from the Knight Church Congregation. I'm going to be leading us today in prayer. If you haven't prayed before, prayer is simply talking to God. So feel free to do that with me as I do that now. But if you don't feel comfortable, feel free just to sit there and listen quietly. Let's pray. Prepare our hearts, Lord. Have mercy on us, God, according to your unfailing love and compassion. Blot out our transgressions. Wash away all our iniquities and cleanse us from our sin. Create in us pure hearts and renew a steadfast spirit within us. Help us to wait on you, Lord. Help us to be still and know that you are God. We pray for our nation. Lord, we pray for Australia and particular Victoria with increased coronavirus cases. Lord, we pray for peace peace for comfort and healing. God, we pray in particular as well for the churches in Victoria. God, help them to stand strong, even in this crazy time. I just pray, Lord, that in Victoria, the gospel would go out with great power and with great force in this really troubling time. Lord, we pray for our St. Matthew's community. We pray particularly for our worship ministry here at St. Matthew's. We pray for all who serve by playing, working the sound and data desks, that their efforts might resound to the glory of God and that they might experience the blessing of serving you and us. We bring before you David, our music minister, that you might assist him as he seeks to lead us in magnifying you in word and song. We also continue to pray for his visa application, that the officials dealing with his case would have mercy and that the application would be successful. Lord, please hear our prayer. Father, we pray for all those who are in distress through sickness, grief, and any other infirmity. We pray for those we know who have lost loved ones, those who are sick, and those who are recovering from surgery. In particular, we pray for them, Lord, for you to give them peace and comfort. We will now take a minute to pray silently for those people on our hearts. Comfort and heal, merciful Father, all who are in sorrow, need, sickness, or any other trouble. Give them a firm trust in your goodness. Give us all peace beyond our fears and hope beyond our griefs. You who know our fears and sadness, grant us peace and comfort and joy. Hear us, Father, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.
1: Hi, my name's Fiona and I'm part of the 630 service. Um, today's Bible reading comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. And I'll let you find that in your Bibles. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of abraham for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost
2: hi again it's great to be back uh, talking about my favorite subject uh, the life of jesus and we've been sort of looking at aspects of his ministry that um, a lot of people doubt uh, or at least raise the odd question over Um, back earlier in the year we looked at his portrait as a teacher and you know the question is was he really that unique? Uh, we also earlier in the year looked at his ministry as a healer and a lot of people think, you know, in our scientific day, how can we take any of that seriously? And then just very recently, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at his title, The Christ. This is not his surname, it is a reference to his authority. And of course the, the question is, you know, should we really ascribe to him that level of power and authority? And then last week, um, we confronted one of the most difficult aspects of the portrait of Jesus, uh, his role as the judge. He was a preacher of judgment. And of course, it raises all sorts of questions about the justice of God uh, and what it, what it means for each one of us to be under God's judgment. Uh, today, we're looking at um, a dimension of Christ's life that could feel a bit like a contradiction to this one. Uh, at least in tension with it. Uh, Jesus as the friend, he's described in the Gospels as the friend of sinners. Uh, one passage we'll look at later uh, from Matthew uh, simply says, here is a glutton and a drunkard, this is a criticism of other people, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It's a confronting thought that we'll reflect on in a moment. But, you know, um, I can't stand on this spot right here in St. Matthew's Manly uh, without thinking of a funeral I led about three years ago now, standing right in this spot for this woman, uh, Glenda Weldon, the woman I've mentioned many times when I've spoken at this church, who introduced me uh, to the Christian faith. And she embodied one of the most important aspects of Jesus' life that I want to reflect on today. I mean, my own introduction to the faith didn't come through church attendance or Sunday school or Christian parents. I had none of that. Uh, But it came through this woman, my high school scripture teacher, who had this amazing way of uh, sort of opening her home to the class that she taught, which I know would now be illegal ill-advised, but she did. And um, a whole bunch of us went over to her home and ate her hamburgers, milkshakes, and scones, and listened to her talk about the Christian faith. This was my entry into the faith. And the interesting thing, as I reflect back, is she was so generous socially with us, um, even though in her lounge room were some of the worst sinners in the school. Um, A school bully was there, a drug addict, Uh, One guy with a string of break-and-enters to his name. Uh, I remember once uh, one of our group on Friday afternoon actually stole her DVD player so he could hock it for some drug money. Actually, come to think of it, I think it might have been a video cassette recorder uh, pre-DVD. But anyway, uh, she put up with us with such a generosity of spirit. And her her kindness, um, her meals uh, for us sinners, uh, was the doorway for me uh, to come to the faith. And in fact, about five of my mates, uh, three of whom pictured here, are now actually ministers in uh, churches around the world. Jesus, like this woman, was the friend of sinners and it had a massive impact on people's lives. So let me uh, first say something about the status of sinners, because I know the word sinner is almost comical in our day, but sinners in Jesus' day uh, were not all sort of rapists and murderers and criminals. They could just be people who were unjust. Uh, The wealthy who neglected the poor, maybe they didn't go to synagogue, uh, they would be sinners. They're just people who are living at a distance from the ways of God. And the important thing to understand in order to really get what this aspect of Jesus' life is all about is that contact with sinners was seriously regulated. Um, It was very difficult to have any contact with sinners without it being seen as some kind of religious crime. Uh, Merely being in the presence of a sinner, let alone having a meal, uh, would mean that um, their sinfulness would somehow rub off on you. Here's a text, uh, a Jewish text, uh, not from the Bible, uh, that gives us an an idea of this contagion of contact with sinners. Uh, It's from what's called the Mishnah. Concerning tax collectors who enter your house, the house is unclean. Concerning thieves who enter the house, only the place trodden by the feet of the thieves is unclean. If there is a Gentile with them, everything is unclean. Gentile is a non-Jew. Um, meals were especially problematic uh, in terms of contact with sinners. Here's Craig Blomberg, who's written a major academic work on this, but he, he puts it in perspective, I think, really well. Ancient Judaism viewed meal times as important occasions for drawing boundaries. Dining created an intimate setting in which one nurtured friendship with the right kind of people. Unclean people and objects constantly threatened to corrupt God's holy elect nation and individuals within it. Like literal physical disease, we may think of ritual impurity as contagious. Sin, in other words, was considered a powerful contagion and meals with sinners uh, was a carrier of that contagion, uh, which brings us to this theme of Jesus as the friend of sinners. He regularly wined and dined with those classed as sinners, with those who should be first in line for judgment. There are many texts on this, but here are just a couple. Uh, Mark chapter 2, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Uh, Or this passage that I've already hinted at, um, Jesus said, John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It is an astonishing thing that the historical Jesus was sort of written off by religious conservatives as the friend of sinners. That may sound all sort of cool and open to us now, but in the day, it was a a stinging insult. And yet, uh, it was central to Jesus' mission. our text today uh, makes that perfectly clear. Luke 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. And one of the things to know is that um, Jericho was uh, a sort of wealthy resort town in Jesus' day. And Zacchaeus, as a chief tax collector, was one of the wealthiest people in the district. Um, despite being short, not that there's anything wrong with that, um, he, he wasn't some sort of marginalised poor sinner in the corner. Uh, he, he was more like a kind of greedy controller in the town. And I reckon we too might have muttered that Jesus would think to spend time with him. And when I reflect on this story, I'm just reminded that God doesn't just love the dejected sinners. He even loves the extravagant, arrogant sinners. And Jesus embodied God's love toward them. He wanted to befriend the sinner even at the risk to his own reputation. And he did it all because he wanted to save them. And so let me thirdly talk about the salvation of sinners. The really um, key thing about this passage and to save the lost. Notice the order of the whole narrative. Um, Christ makes the first move. We've already seen that in the first paragraph that um, Christ spots him. Christ says, "I'm coming to your home." Christ is the one who lavishes welcome on someone he knows is a chief sinner, and and then Zacchaeus, overwhelmed by that sense of welcome from Jesus, responds with what we call repentance, but it's really just a change of heart that expresses itself in action. In other words, Christ shows his grace to Zacchaeus and then Zacchaeus responds with this sort of lavish gift back to the poor uh, and uh, those that he's cheated. He wants to make it up uh, in a really significant way. I mean, the point I'm just trying to make is it's not human action first and then You know, Jesus makes a move toward you. Jesus makes his gracious move first, and that triggers a beautiful response. This is all put um, well by one of the great uh, scholars of the 20th century, uh, Ben Meyer, uh, from McMaster University in Canada, wrote this. The new thing in the act of Jesus was that he reversed the normal religious structure. He sought communion first, Conversion second. His table fellowship with sinners implied no acceptance of their sins, but in a world in which sinners stood inescapably condemned, Jesus' openness to them was irresistible. Contact triggered repentance. Conversion flowered from communion. Nothing could have dramatized the free grace and the present realization of God's saving act more effectively than this unheard-of initiative towards sinners. Bringing God's salvation into the present was exactly what our passage says Jesus was trying to do. He announces, today salvation has come to this house and that he, the Son of Man, came to seek and to save the lost. Now, being saved is um, cliched language now, I think it's fair to say. Um, it doesn't just mean becomes a Christian, you know. Uh, it, it really means rescued, rescued from the judgment of God that we reflected on last week. It's really important to understand that Jesus wasn't just this cool left-wing liberal who went around saying to everyone hey you know you're loved (laughs) live it up no this is very serious stuff and we saw last week Jesus preached judgment like any fire and brimstone preacher but he did it without a smile on his face he did it with tears in his eyes and actually the thing that underlines the seriousness of this idea of being saved more than anything else in the whole story of Christ is that Jesus said he had to die for sinners. He came to bear into himself the justice, the judgment that human beings deserve. That's how he came to seek and to save the lost, because he died for us. That's how he establishes friendship between undeserving people like me, like you, dare I say. And the holy God, the just God. You know, when I um, first came to Christianity, I had no trouble accepting the news that God loved me. And I think the reason for that was that I had a kind of sample of one of a Christian. And it was the woman I mentioned earlier. And she was just so incredibly gracious toward um, all of us actually. I remember one evening in year 10 um, at the end of a really drunken party, one of my mates um, said, please don't take me home. My, my dad will be you know, really angry if he sees me like this. And the, he wasn't coming back to my place. So uh, we were thinking, what do we do with him? It's nearly midnight. And one of us had this idea, doesn't the scripture teacher live down the road, and she did. She just lived like 500 metres from the party we were at. So I'm embarrassed to say it now, but we thought it was plausible to go and knock on her door at midnight and ask, can this drunk buddy, you know, bunker here? And we knock on her door. We interrupt a really posh dinner party that she was in the middle of. And yet she didn't bat an eyelid. I mean, she was a teetotaler. She was always honoured us about drinking alcohol, but she just said, of course, come in. We um, uh, threw our mate into the shower. She went and got him some spare clothes. Uh, we, we put him in some spare clothes, threw him in one of the uh, guest rooms and left him for the night. And uh, Glenda went back to her posh party with her husband and the guests and so on. And the next morning we turn up at uh, at her house to collect our mate and there he is at the kitchen table. Glenda making bacon and eggs for him, chatting away. And there was just this incredible grace toward us, even though we knew at the same time that she felt that our lives didn't match up to God's standards. I guess the reason I'm telling you that is that when you have someone like that in your life, it's kind of easy to believe that God loves you despite your sins. You know, my uh, last book uh, is dedicated to this woman. Let me read what's there. Glenda Natasha Weldon, who put up with this godless 16-year-old and his scoundrel mates every Friday afternoon after school as we ate her hamburgers and scones, debated her God and lost, listened to her read and explain the four Gospels, took advantage of her generosity, caused her frequent headaches before eventually finding ourselves captivated by the story she told about the man from Nazareth. Even if you don't have someone like that in your life, um, we do have Christ who displayed through his meals, the friendship God wants with the undeserving, and more than that, we know that his death and resurrection was for us, bearing our punishment so that we could be clean, so that we could experience the love of God, so that we could be friends with the Almighty. It's an extraordinary thought. I suppose Christians can get really used to it, but I hope that those that maybe are just on the edge, just thinking about all this, will see the beauty the uniqueness the extraordinary nature of the central Christian claim that Christ is the friend of the sinner